messages, but we're coming back to our study in Ephesians today. Just a moment, I'm going to read from the first six verses of uh, Ephesians. I'm sure in the time I've been here, I've shared my call to ministry, and um, as I look back at my life, it wasn't that God just called me one day and said, you're going to be a pastor, and you're going to be a pastor in southern Buckingham County. In fact, God's call upon my life was really an interesting thing. I had my sights set on being a high school teacher of math and a coach, and uh, so as I attended Hamden Sydney College, I was really preparing uh, to do that. And uh, but God works in interesting ways, and sometimes for God to show us what He wants us to do, He has to convince us that what we want to do, we shouldn't do. And God used a very specific situation in my life to direct me toward the ministry. As I said, I was a student at Hampton Sydney College and. I wanted to give back to my community, and so I came back to Appomattox, and on Saturday mornings, I would coach a youth league basketball team. But it was then that I realized that every parent's child was the best, and the coach doesn't know anything. (laughs) And then when you have a child that also feels he or she is the best, you're really in trouble. So my experience was this, and at that time, I sort of felt God nudging toward ministry, but I still was thinking I wanted to follow this plan that I had. And so I was working on Saturday mornings and volunteering my time, trying to reason with people who were unreasonable. And I had kids at the end of the bench crying, parents in the crowd correcting me, And I remember coming home one day and said, I don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) And God used that negative experience in my life to direct me uh, into the pastorate. But, you know, we all hate disunity and dissension, don't we? It just, it unsettles us. We've ever stopped and thought that it does the same thing to God, especially in the church that God does not like disunity, that disunity does not originate from God. You know, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in, in John 17, what did he do? He prayed for the disciples that they would be one, and for us he prayed for those who would come after that we would be one. We worship God three in one, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And while they're in a sense distinct in person, in a very real sense, they are one entity. We serve one God. And so as we look at God's nature, as we look at Jesus' prayer, as we look at Paul's counsel here today, we would have to answer the question, does unity in the church matter to God with a vehement yes. In Ephesians 4, Paul was concerned about the practical outworking of unity in the local church. And in these first six verses, he makes it very clear that unity is part of God's nature and that God's desire for the church is that it be unified. 
and that if we're going to really attain unity, it comes through God's work. But for God to work, we must yield to God's work. With that in mind, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4 in the first six verses. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this very important subject, not only to us, not only to Paul, but most importantly to you. I pray, Father, as we go into this new year, that we would resolve to be united not around a preacher or around uh, a theme, but that, Lord, we would be united in you. You're the bond who keeps us united. Father, we're different, of different walks of life, of different situations, experiences, different backgrounds. But, Father, where Satan would desire to delight in our divisions and our differences, help us, Lord, through Christ to understand our unity in you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today, as we move back into Ephesians, we're looking verse by verse. We've been through the first three chapters and So we're really about at the midpoint. It worked out well that we stopped there during the Christmas season. We considered the first three chapters, and now we're moving in the second three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's not just a transition in that way, but we see there's a transition in how Paul is addressing the church here. For instance, the first three chapters deal with doctrine doctrinal truths about God. Uh, For instance, an example would be in Ephesians 2, the the truth, the doctrine that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But really here, beginning in chapter 4 and continuing in chapter 5 and 6, Paul is focusing on the application of the truth. And so, very simply put, chapters 1 through 3, Paul writes, this is what it is, And in chapters 4 through 6, here's what you're to do about it. Now, this isn't the only New Testament book that we find such a a division, a, a, a division in the text, but actually working together. But in Colossians, has four chapters. The first two chapters deal with doctrinal truths. And then in beginning in chapter 3, he says so, and that follows with the application of those truths. And here in Ephesians 4, in that similar vein, the first three chapters, he's establishing spiritual truths, truths for the church there, and then he follows that with the word therefore, and he proceeds to express again that the church should do this. And so as we look today, and as we begin this last half of Ephesians, we're going to look at the believer's responsibility to facilitate unity 
in the body. Now, that isn't the only thing he talks about because Paul, after establishing the truths in chapter 3, he says, okay, you have a responsibility. We're going to see today in the church and next week in the church. We're going to look in Ephesians 5, responsibilities in the home, the roles and responsibilities there. We also see that we have responsibility toward ourselves, toward ourselves, our spiritual growth, and most importantly to God. But today we begin with our responsibility in the church. And in the church, we're not to be divisive. Now, we'll, I'll probably mention this more than once. There are points that we need to stand, and they may be dividing points. For instance, if I'm up here and I'm speaking something that's inconsistent with the truth, and you know it to be, you should stand up and speak to that. But we're not talking about that issue here. How do we know it? Because in context we see that Paul is writing who held the doctrinal truth that there was the threat of unity uh, in the church there. And the division wasn't over essential things, but what we might call non-essential things. Things that could easily lead to pride and could lead to factions in the church there. As we look at the subject of unity today, unity comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives, is a result of an inward working of God in the life of a church, the inward working of God in the individual members who are part of that church. It's not just some outward thing. I was amused at an illustration that related this very truth. I noticed this week a man named Leslie Flynn talked about it. He said, two chickens tied at the legs and thrown over a clothesline may be united, but they do not have unity. (laughs) So we're not talking about some outward conformity here, but we're talking about an inward unction, a work of God that brings unity from the heart. That's why Jesus prayed for unity, that we would be one. God is the one who brings unity in the church. And so there were times when Paul had to address the issue of unity. But as we look at Jesus, Jesus addressed the Father. And so if there's going to be unity in the church, it begins with and from God. But we must participate in it. And so we should both pray and act in a way that would lead the body to be unified. This morning, I want to look at uh, these six verses really in two parts. And the the first I want us to note is the plea Paul had to the Ephesians that they possess the attributes that bring unity in the church. Unity doesn't just happen. We see that it talks about they were to diligently pursue it. And really, we see uh, specifically four, and they're really in two pairs, attributes that facilitate unity. We might call them ingredients. I was thinking just a few moments ago, uh, my second grade teacher, Ms. Alvis, had a brilliant idea uh, and uh, I was at Abmax Primary School and she wanted us to develop our own recipe book. And so we, from a second grade mind, would develop recipes. She put them all together, compiled them, and gave them to the parents. Mine was hamburger, kill a cow and put it in the oven. 
That was literally what I said. I literally said that, and she printed it just as I said it. My mom got a big chuckle out of it. But you know, when it comes to whatever it is, they're ingredients. And so what are the ingredients of unity? It's not like this, God, we're going to be unified. But we have to facilitate that. And so, you know, as we look at it, Paul is writing here in, in Ephesians 4, and he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord. Now, we know that this is one of Paul's prison epistles. He was a prisoner of the Roman Empire. But he doesn't qualify his incarceration. He doesn't qualify by saying, I'm imprisoned by the Roman Empire. He said, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Well, if we follow it, that's exactly what he was. If he had renounced his faith in the Lord, he would not have been imprisoned. That's what got him in trouble in the first place. But what was he saying? He says, I'm obligated to the Lord. I answer to the Lord. And, and it's very interesting as I was reading through this, sometimes we just go through, I'm, I'm the prisoner of the Lord and don't think about it. But really what Paul is saying is I'm yielding myself to the Lord. I answer to him. And, and if we all would do that, then there would be unity in the church. And so after that, we see after he describes who he is, he, he says at the end of verse 1, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. Now that word um, in your translation may be walk, it may be live, but the idea is the word means this. As you go about and around in your daily lives, live consistently with the call that God has placed on your life. Now it doesn't mean that we are in and of ourselves worthy. Because we've already seen in Ephesians 2 in regard to our salvation, not one of us is worthy. We're all dependent upon the grace of God. It's not talking about our makeup in and of ourselves. It's talking about our manner. That we are to live in a manner that is holy. In a manner that is worthy of the faith to which we are called. And there are many ways this applies. We're to live in a way not marked by coarse talk. Vile talk shouldn't mark our lives. We're to live in a way that's morally pure. We're to live without lying, without cheating, without stealing. All of these encompass living a life that is worthy of the calling that's consistent with the calling. But it's very interesting. Paul speaks of all of these elsewhere. You can go through his letters and he speaks of these elsewhere. But very specifically here, he addresses the issue of unity. He commands that we possess the attributes that would lead toward unity. So to walk in a way worthy of the call that we have means that we live purely. It means that our talk, our conduct, and all of that is not in an ungodly way. But also along with that, that we possess the attributes that lead to unity, and he lists them. First, he says in verse 2, that we're to walk with all humility and gentleness. Now, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.18, there's a false humility, and, and maybe you've experienced that. But the question is, what is true humility? Well, it's not demanding one's way. It's not putting ourselves before God or others. It's not looking down on other people. It's being teachable. It's being compliant. It's not being resistant. 
You see, pride is a catalyst to disunity. And so he speaks in the latter part of the verses that we just read about unity and how the faith is one. But if we are to practice the faith, we're to possess the attributes that lead toward unity. And pride is not that. Pride is a catalyst for disunity. We learn that all the way back in the book of Genesis. Remember, God told Adam and Eve not to partake from the tree that he forbade them to eat. But you remember the devil's first two strategies when he came to Eve. The first was, did God really say that? That's why we need to stand on the word of God today. The very first tactic the devil used, who is a deceiver, is to try to question the word of God. And we'll hear people say, well, that's what it meant then. It doesn't mean now. No, God's word is God's word. We have to study it. We have to apply it. But then the second strategy he had dealt with trying to divide Eve and God. And what did he say? He said, God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like him. What was he appealing to? Human pride. And what did human pride bring? It brought a division called sin. Where there's wrongful division, there's pride. And it's, it's very ugly. And it shouldn't be in the church. In fact, in his letter to the Philippian church, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche, and I don't know anybody by those names here, but I urge you to be of the same mind. It doesn't mean that we think alike in everything, but that we're like-minded. We don't agree on every single detail. Uh, Y'all know I'm not a big fan of chicken pot pie, but I can sit down at the table with you. That doesn't mean we can't eat at the same table. Hopefully you wouldn't offer it to me. (laughs) And so it doesn't mean that we're programmed to think alike, but we're to have an attitude of cooperation, of unity, along with humility. Paul appeals for them to possess, in verse 2, gentleness, meekness. Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so if we're going to facilitate unity in the Lord's church, there are times when we need to have a gentle demeanor, not a weak demeanor. Meekness doesn't mean weak, but a gentle demeanor. The humble and the gentle person is one who promotes unity in the church. But I want you to see he adds to that. That if we're going to walk worthy, we need to walk with patience. He says that in the middle of verse 2. Patience is a word that means very simply slow to anger, not someone riled. Very closely associated to patience, Paul appeals to them to bear with one another. And so we deal with patience, what? Toward the Lord as God works. Many times toward others, Lord, help me to be patient, but also to bear with one another, our fellow man. That verb, bear with, carries the idea of enduring not just pleasant times, but difficult times, to deal graciously with others in their unbecoming situations and attitudes. You know, I'm really happy to be back in a nursing home facility. Bob, are you going this afternoon? Yeah. Yeah. Going this week, uh, 
we enjoy it. That's something both of us have done for, for a long time here. Uh, but I love that ministry. And uh, just this past week, you know, there's so many lessons to learn. Uh, one of our own, Vicki Lee, had uh, a birthday, and I thought I was going to be the first to sing happy birthday to her, but her brother David beat me to it. <laughs> he, he got there earlier than I did. But one of the most blessed, the most blessed thing that happened to me this week was I started singing. That wasn't a blessing. <laughs> but as I was singing and Vicki was in there, I saw this lady roll her wheelchair in there. And I'll be honest, the fleshly part, the first thought, she doesn't know where she is, and we're going to have to redirect her. But I was wrong. She had two little candies in her hand. And she said, I didn't know it was your birthday. I don't have much, but I'm going to give that to you. And uh, so I went about, visited, and visited Ruby Gray for a little bit. And, and after I came back through, I, I hope I don't cry, um, and I might. <laughs> but I saw that lady, and she was sitting in the hallway holding a lady's hand who didn't know where she was or anything. You could see the lady limp, and she was holding her hand. And I thought, with everything that goes on today, she's a unifier. She didn't say, this isn't being done. She went and she did it. You can learn a lot in a nursing home. A lot of us, we avoid nursing homes. And if we would be honest, the reason we avoid them is we're scared of them. But we're not to be scared. There's so many lessons. Uh, one thing, and Bob can probably attest to this, whenever you're in a group and a lot of people come in the room, inevitably somebody's going to roll over somebody's foot and you can find out a whole lot about the victim. Some of them, they immediately yell, get off my foot, and they're mad. Some of them, they're half asleep or whatever, they don't know it, but then they're the sweet ones, similar in the spirit of that lady that I just knew who understood that person didn't know what they were doing. I'm not going to become upset with them. Hey, in the church, there are going to be times when people roll over our feet. There are going to be times when people say things that offend us. There are going to be times when we bump into people and it really doesn't set with us, but God's word says that we're to be patient, that we're to bear with one another. Very simply put, unity requires effort. Verse 3, there's a lot in that verse. Making every effort, being diligent. It takes work for church to be united. It, it doesn't just come. But notice what it says, to keep the unity. A lot of times we think we're going to promote. No, unity is something we need to preserve. Jesus has prayed for the unity of the church. We need to preserve that unity. And so we need to make each effort, we need to make great effort, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. And you know what that peace is, it's Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2 and verse 14, this same book. 
he's talking doctrinally there in chapter 2 about Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus Christ is our peace. How is it attained? It's the work of the Spirit, the peace of Christ. But listen, we must accommodate it. We must allow it. Jesus is a peace that binds us. And so we see these commands, but then in verses 4 through 6, we see the nature of the faith that the Ephesians and we possess. I just turn back to Ephesians 2, really verses 11 through 22, that entire section, if you have a caption or a heading in your Bible, it says unity in Christ. And basically the doctrinal truth is that every Christian finds his and her unity in faith in Christ. Before that, Paul was writing to this church. He said there were Jews and there were Gentiles. There were those who were far away who did not know and those who knew the laws. There were those who were without law, those with it, those who were uncircumcised, those who were circumcised. But he says, now in Christ you're one. Jesus came to bring us together. The Trinity is unified in his purpose and in his substance. One of the defining attributes of the local church should be unity. You You want to know what one of the worst testaments of a church could be is they can't get along. It's not consistent. It's not expected. We need to be united. Look at verses really four through six, seven times the word one is used. He says, you were called to one hope. In fact, let's go back to the beginning. There's one body. There's one body. What is that body? The church. There's one spirit. Who is he? He's the one that brings us all into the faith. His convicting work brings us into the faith. There is one hope. What is our one hope? Heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. There's one Lord. Who is our one Lord? Jesus Christ. There's one faith. The faith that is of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. One baptism. This doesn't speak of mode but it speaks toward public profession. There's one public profession, and that is Jesus Christ, one God and Father who is our creator. And so we see that Paul is commanding unity, but he is saying the very substance of our faith is that of unity. And Jesus is the tie that binds us. A few weeks ago when Uh, I guess it was late November or so when we were in uh, Ephesians 2. I shared a testimony of when I was doing a mission trip in a country in the southern part of Africa. And I talked about a Sunday morning worship service like this. You may remember it. And I did not speak the same language as those who were involved. I did not look like those who were involved. 
I came halfway across the country. I was worshiping in their church, and I never felt as much a part of heaven as I did that time. You know why? Because I realized that while we spoke differently, while we looked differently, while we lived in different parts of the world, the one thing that bound us was the central thing of that day, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about that this week. That is the miracle of what the gospel does to unite all of us. But then I thought, equally great is when a small church in Buckingham County made up of different people with different ideas and different mannerisms in different ways, sometimes rolling over each other's feet, comes out and says, we're family, we're one through Jesus Christ. How do we attain it? We've seen it. It's a work of God. Only God can unify the church. We don't want to be unified around anything else. Think about the world today. They're trying to bring unity around things that are transient, things that are not eternal. The one constant, the one unifier is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the work of God. We must yield to him. In pre-marriage counseling, and other, I'm not the first that have done it. Many of you probably have done it if you've counseled premarital um, done premarital counseling. I usually draw a triangle. At the apex of the triangle is God. On each bottom angle is the couple that's to be married. And I tell each of them, I say, as you look at this triangle, and maybe it's this long, I say, as each of you moves closer to God, guess what? You're getting closer to each other. Now, how does the church Remain united. We keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. You get closer to him. I get closer to him. He speaks clarity, and thus unity comes. So as we go into 2023, may our prayer be, Lord, we want your will. Paul said it at the beginning. He was a prisoner of the Lord. So he, he, he didn't have his opinions or his, his desires weren't controlling his actions. It was the Lord. May it be as we go into 2023 that this body would be united, not united around a preacher, around other leaders, not united around a program, but the Lord Jesus Christ to his glory. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this subject of unity, Father, it is very clear and simple. We are united when we're right with you, but Father, we make it complicated because just as we see in the book of Genesis, we're tempted to assert our own way. Father, we need your help and your grace in it. And Father, the purpose of unity, as we'll see next week, is not just that we can bask in the absence of conflict, but that, Lord, we would, as part of the, part of the body of Christ, be effective for you. Lord, I pray for 2023 in this church. We need your direction. We need your counsel. We need your will. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder today.